Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files. With your host, David Axelrod. I last spoke with Susan Rice on this podcast six years ago when she published her memoir about her extraordinary life and career and service, including her stint as UN ambassador and as national security advisor to President Barack Obama. But then she returned to public life in 2021 in an entirely new role as President Biden's domestic policy advisor during his very eventful first years in office. When we sat down this week, I was curious about that big transition and the observations she gleaned in working with Biden on some of his greatest domestic priorities. Here's that conversation. Susan Rice, my old friend, it's it's great to see you. It's really good to see you, David. It's been you, too long. You've got the glow of a person who's been out of government for a few months. <laughs> uh, I can always recognize it. You don't have that uh, that sort of haggard, sleepless look that I come to associate with my friends in the White House. I've had a nice summer. That's great. <laughs> so let me let me ask you because it was it was interesting to me. I mean, my whole exposure to you was uh, because of your foreign policy expertise, and all of your history in government was in in that. And then you decided to take this job. First of all, why? Why did you 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 went into the Biden administration, not in a in a national security role, but in a domestic policy role? And I think a lot of people said, "Well, that's interesting. That's sort of out out of type." What what caused you to to decide to do that? Well, in the first instance, uh, I knew that if I could, I wanted to serve again uh, with uh, President Biden. I'd worked with him, as you know, for eight years while we uh, served President Obama, uh, and I'd actually known President Biden for many years before when he was in the Senate. Uh, and uh, I thought it was a critical time both to advance our priorities and our agenda, but also to try to undo so much of the damage uh, of the Trump administration. And when the president asked me to serve in the domestic policy role, I actually was excited about it. Um, and uh, it goes back, frankly, David, to my upbringing and my childhood. Actually, long before I got into foreign policy and national security, which really happened after graduate school, uh-huh. growing up here in Washington, D.C., with uh, parents who were very much involved in education policy issues, equity issues, economic policy issues. I actually knew I always had a desire to serve. I thought for the longest time that it would be on the domestic side. 
And then when I had the opportunity at age 28, at the very beginning of the Clinton administration, to serve in government, I had two job offers, actually. Yeah, one in the National Economic Council. One in the National Economic Council for Bob Rubin and the other on the National Security Council for Tony Lake. And yeah, I wrestled a, with that decision. High-class problem. <laughs> it was a very high-class problem. Yeah. And I kind of did it eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And honestly, I, as I wrote in uh, my memoir, Tough Love, I... I made the calculation really based on ignorance that it might be harder to transition from domestic policy to foreign policy than the other way around. And since I had the opportunity to start in foreign policy, I decided that's what I would do. And then one thing led to another in 25 years of work. So having the opportunity to come back under President Biden and do domestic policy uh, was exciting to me. Steep learning curve, new issues. But Many of the same skills and experiences that I had developed over many years, particularly as national security advisor, I was confident I could apply to the work of domestic policy. You guys have accomplished a lot, and I'm not saying that this is not a partisan point, but just as an objective matter, a lot was done in the in the time that you were there. And I want to get to all of that. But, you know, we're sitting in Washington right now, and I understand a little about the sort of pathology of this town. And, you know, national security, if everybody knows who the national security advisor is, that's not generally been the case for the domestic policy advisor. So in this weird, perverse town, and I can say that because I don't live here. You do. You can defend it if you want. Uh, it's always sort of like, what do you do? And, and how you're measured is, well, how many people report to you? What meetings are you in? What Was it an adjustment to you for you to come in in a role that is important? Especially in, with a president who cares about domestic policy, but not as not as um, visible and with not as big an empire as you commanded when you were the national security <laughs> advisor. It's an interesting question. I guess it was an adjustment in some ways, but but not in others. Uh, you know, the amount of public profile I had was something that I was per- perfectly able to uh, to determine. So, you know, if I had wanted to be out on TV, uh, you know, almost every day. I could have been out on TV every day. I thought my comparative advantage and the way that I could best contribute was to bring these skills that I'd learned on the national security side to driving the bureaucracy and the agencies to outcomes that serve people. And that's that's not a, you can, there's certainly value in being out. And I was, uh, when I thought it was appropriate, I'd be on TV or do interviews or whatever. Um, but we were, we were really focused on what could we get done through legislation, through executive action that would tangibly improve people's lives. What was an adjustment though, uh, was, you know, I, at the National Security Council, I did have a staff of at, at one point as many as 400 people. And I had about a 10th of that at the Domestic Policy Council. And then I had to be very thoughtful about, you know, how do you cover so much territory? I, I was responsible as domestic policy advisor for health care, for veterans, for racial equity, for criminal justice, for gun policy, for education, well, agriculture, you took a piece immigration, of immigration as well. Imm- which, large piece of immigration. Yeah, which like we, all should, the, we should talk about, yeah. All these various pieces. And then how do I be effective with a much smaller team? And that was an interesting challenge and one that uh, I think uh, I, I managed to, to figure out how to 
work with. But that was an adjustment. You know, if, if you're working on Africa uh, at the National Security Council, an office I once ran yes. in the Clinton administration, you know, I had three or four, five people, depending on you know what was going on, able to support just our work just on, on sub-Saharan issue, yeah. Africa. Yeah. You know, my whole education team was two full-time people. Yeah. So that gives you a sense of the the differences. Yeah. As a manager, how did you handle that? And how did they handle you handling it? It was, <laughs> it was interesting. First of all, the other challenge was, if, you know, having spent 25 years in national security, I knew the people and the players. If I had to remake a National Security Council staff, I would have known exactly who to tap. I didn't have that same experience and advantage coming in as domestic policy advisor. So I had to learn the people and I had to trust people whose judgment uh, I respected, proven, who, had, yeah, who knew you. the people, to build a team. And I built a first-class team that I'm super proud of, really smart, really committed people who were experts and from whom I learned. I mean, I I didn't pretend coming in to know everything. I, I couldn't possibly. Some of these issues are highly technical, the healthcare issues, the immigration issues in particular. So the challenge was to find the best people uh, who... I could learn from and who um, I could rely on and trust and empower them. And that's what I did. How much was the early work that you did consumed by the pandemic, which was sort of enveloping the whole country at the time? People forget what it was like when you guys took office, not just you know all of the reverberations from the insurrection, but the country was very much steeped in a really, really bad time relative to this that I think we still haven't actually emotionally recovered from completely. But how much did that absorb you at the beginning? Well, it's interesting. I mean, first of all, it affected all of us because, David, you and I worked together in the White House. You know what a bustling place that is. And when we started on January... With very narrow corridors. Exactly. When we started on January 20th, that afternoon after inauguration, and for several months thereafter, there were very few people in that complex because of COVID. You know, the, the senior West Wing staff was there and the skeletal staff for all of us were in the old executive office building. And, and most Across other people street, yeah. were working remotely. It wasn't until the summer of 2021 when most White House staff were able to come back and work full-time on campus. And so that was strange. And it it... it affected, you know, how you hire people, how you build a team. Especially for you when you're trying to build a team. When you don't actually know everybody already. But we we managed. And and it's, it's fascinating to me how much you can accomplish over Zoom, but I think there's no substitute. I, this experience taught me the real value of in-person work. You really yeah. need to be able to walk down the hall and open a door and say to your colleague, how do we solve this problem? But to answer your question about the pandemic, you know, we had a whole team led by Jeff Zients, uh, who is now our chief of staff, who ran all of our COVID policy and COVID response. But then there were pieces of it that were very much relevant to the work of the policy councils. So, for example, for us at, at the Domestic Policy Council, the whole challenge of how do we reopen our schools and and make up for learning loss, that was very much uh, a focus of ours. Well, let me, let me ask you about that, actually, because this is a lingering sort of issue as to whether the president should be more aggressive about calling for school reopenings. And, you know, there were deep concerns from the 
teachers unions and so on about that concern about the safety of their teachers. But in the full blush of history, which you know we can look back on it now, did that happen fast enough, do you think? And you guys must have batted these issues around the trade-offs between time lost in the classroom and, you know, the risk of further spread. Remember, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but people, I think, forget. President Biden came into office in January of 2021. Pandemic had been going on almost a year and kids were out of school. He came back in and said very clearly, we've got to get our kids back in school and we got to do it safely for them and for their families and for the teachers. And so in March, uh, we, after a ton of work, we got the American Rescue Plan uh, enacted by Congress. $122 billion of that rescue plan was for education and for helping you know, ensure that, stu- that schools had the testing, the masks, the ventilation, as well as the support for students, uh, uh, you know, mental health supports, right. tutoring that they needed. And so that enabled schools to reopen during that semester of uh, the first, you know, first half of 2021. We reopened the schools. The president was very adamant that we had to do so and do so quickly but safely. And, you know, there will always be some who will want to score political points on one side or another of that uh, very difficult issue. But it was the president who actually did reopen the schools. But leaving the political points aside, this has been sort of a flare point with parents, you know, especially now, you know, you still hear the concerns because of what we now know, which is that people lost. Learning loss is real. Yeah. And it's it's sustained. And, and you know, uh, I, I think the best one could do as we came into office was to try to give uh, states and localities the tools and the resources and the encouragement to reopen as quickly as they safely possibly could. And that's uh, what they did. But we now are grappling with, and we will, I believe, for many years, the loss of learning in that year, two years um, of of the pandemic. And, you know, that's going to be a long-term challenge. Yeah. I I want to just relate it to the pandemic. Something interested me uh, about your biography. Your dad was in the Tuskegee Airmen. And that's a proud tradition, but there's also, there are lingering issues related to it, not to, not the least of which is that there was a segregated unit, but about a medical experimentation and so on. And there was resistance um, in various communities, but in the African-American community. And part of what was said was, we've had bad experiences in the past. And I was wondering, given the history that you know personally, how big a a problem was that because this vaccine resistance continues to this day? Well, it's, it's a really interesting question. First of all, there, beside the Tuskegee experiments, there were so many inter- instances in our history where uh, African-Americans and other uh, uh, minority groups were used by elements of the government essentially as guinea pigs um, for various uh, medical and eugenics type experimentation. So there is a historical um, uh, skepticism, to put it mildly, um, of the government in medicine as it relates to people of color, particularly African Americans. Yet, uh, you know, it it was African Americans and Latinos um, and Native Americans who were dying in the greatest numbers from COVID, um, and it was absolutely essential that those groups 
get access to uh, and uh, and knowledge of the value of vaccines. And you know the team that I mentioned that Jeff Science led uh, as COVID coordinator really prioritized vaccine equity and ensuring that not only it was available in communities, you know, rural and urban. Uh, tribal that needed it most, but that there was an education campaign to explain this is for your benefit. And remarkably, David, it worked. The vaccine uptake in the African-American community when we came in was well behind the white community. It met and then exceeded it. Uh, And same same for Native Americans. Part of that probably has to do with the fact that Skepticism in some seg- segments of the, the white, white community, community went up. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but, but, but you know, some seventy. What do we do plus, about that, by the way? About about the politicization of. I mean, I it, I don't know what to do when when you see somebody like Ron DeSantis have his, uh, you know, his state attorney general advise people not to get a booster. That's just insanity. Yeah. And, and I think so, it was a surgeon general, but well, same. Yeah, it's, yeah. But authorities that yeah. under his command, right? Announcing. Telling Floridians not to get a booster when you know all of the evidence is to the contrary. So you know, yeah, I, I think Iowa can't come fast enough for <laughs> for some of those folks in Florida because no, no, clearly it's, it's all make being, a difference. It's all going to be. It's all seems to be in service of a point he's trying to make in his campaign. Yeah, but it's a point I think he's going to. Con- I, I don't think Ron DeSantis when as I anticipate he will, you know, doesn't win the primary, is going to be, you know, any more responsible about things like vaccines. Yeah. One of the dismaying things to me is the degree to which everything is sort of fitted into this sort of cultural political divide in ways that make it hard to solve real life problems affecting people. What are the things that you worked on that you look back on with the greatest satisfaction. Well, thank you for asking that. I mean, the, the, the truth is that there, there are a number of things. Uh, and as you pointed out, we, we actually were able to get a great deal done uh, in you know, just the first couple of years of this administration. A historic legislation, we talked about the American Rescue Plan, which uh, really uh, helped uh, buoy the economy and, and save critical industries. For example, the childcare sector, uh, which was going under and which on which the entire economy depends. As parents can't go to work if their kids don't have a place to go. That's an example of um, the, the value of, of the American Rescue Plan. The Inflation Reduction Act had uh, not only critical provisions related to trying to combat climate change and promote, uh, you know, uh, tax credits to incentivize uh, clean energy, but it also had historic provisions in healthcare that we worked very hard to achieve. And it's in healthcare is one of the areas where I am really most uh, proud of what we were able to do, you know, vastly increased the number of Americans who had health insurance and received that health insurance at much lower costs. The Inflation Reduction Act also enabled us for the first time to start to get a grip on prescription drug costs, which, and as you know, in the United States are many times higher than they are anywhere else in the developed world. And it's it's exploitative and ridiculous. So the Inflation Reduction Act capped the cost of insulin at $35 a month for, you know, the, the millions of Americans who rely on insulin. And not only now do they apply to Medicare recipients, which is what the legislation did. What the president did through using the bully pulpit is demand, in effect, that the the uh, main 
suppliers of insulin cap it at $35 a month, not just for people on Medicare, but everybody who uses insulin, because there's no reason. It costs about $10 a vial to make. They were charging people hundreds of dollars a month in some instances. So it's just ridiculous. So not only is it in effect for Medicare, it's in effect for uh, now for everybody. Um, you know, cap the prescription drug out-of-pocket expenses that Americans will have to pay it in no more than $2,000 a year. And then, of course, Medicare is now negotiating down the price of prescription drugs, which is a huge benefit. So uh, that is something that I'm very, very proud of. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. If you ask people today, and this is a problem in many different areas, but if you ask them about their health care costs, they'd say generally they're going up. And so, you know, and this is true of a lot of the president's domestic agenda, real accomplishments, historic in some cases, the infrastructure bill, climate investments. Chips Act. Yeah, all, all of that. Uh, some of them done, despite my earlier lamentations on a, on a bipartisan basis, yeah. um, but people don't feel it. They haven't seen it yet in their lives. They go to the supermarket and they watch the cash register and it seems like things are much more expensive that you they go to the gas pump i'm sure people might listen to us talk and say well that's a bunch of bull i don't feel like i'm paying less how do you penetrate that do you think david i should ask you that you're the the oh yeah that's right i forgot (laughs) no i I think it's i think it's an issue because if you claim more than people are willing to than people feel then it looks like you're out of touch or you're not telling the truth 
Well, we are telling the truth. I know you and, are. And I'm, not, I'm not suggesting is, otherwise. I know, but the, we do need to. We, there's two pieces to this, at least. You tell me. Yeah. You, okay. I would look yeah, to your let's see what kind of political this. strategist you are. There's two pieces. There's the facts, as I just laid them out, uh-huh. you know, which are important for people to know. And we've got to do, you know, uh, a better job of, of figuring out how to communicate that in a way that, that people hear. And then there's the, the countervailing. In realities and sometimes perceptions of realities that people feel. It's one thing to say, you know, that your prescription drug prices might be starting to come down for some things. Doesn't mean that when you go to the grocery store, you haven't been paying more for eggs. You know, both can be true. Uh, and the the reality is, you know, inflation has been a challenge. It's thankfully, knock on wood, coming down and hopefully will stay down. Um, but it's going to be a while before that is the new normal that people perceive to be uh, reality. But at the same time, as you know, we have historically low unemployment. Yeah. We have historically high wage growth. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the interesting things like, you tell me what we're supposed to do. (laughs) We (laughs) collectively, since neither of us are still serving. Yeah. No, no. Look, I, I think that we face the same challenge in the first years of the Obama administration going into his reelection because Things were objectively improving, but people didn't really feel it. And we were very careful about uh, essentially um, uh, acknowledging their uh, their feelings and sort of talking about the nature of the battles that we fought. If I were President Biden, I'd really emphasize, you know, there are reasons why prescription drugs, it's been such a stubborn problem, prescription prices, and a lot of it has to do with the power of the pharmaceutical industry and, and the his, fact that they had a sweetheart deal from congress and he was able to overcome that yep. which you know i think reflects strength um but um so you know i think it's not just a matter of uh, i i think you do less well asking for a report card than you do reporting on on the ongoing struggle to make this economy work better for everyday people acknowledging that there's a lot of work to be done and these are signposts along the way, but they're also reflective of values. And, you know, so I, I think, you know, they, they, they probably need to, I'm sure they are thinking through how to solve this uh, conundrum because the easiest thing in the world is to exploit what people are feeling. And that's what, you know, the president's opponents uh, are doing one more thing on healthcare because it's sort of a everybody who listens to this podcast knows this, but I know that you also are very interested in the mental mental health, and it's a huge concern of mine. Um, tell me what specifically what progress you made. I know you were deeply involved in the in the standing up of the nine eight eight system. So if people need yep. crisis intervention, yeah. Um, well, look, David, I, this, I'm glad you raised this because this is something that, that I think is so important and I, I care deeply about. And I think it's... Let me let me interrupt you and just ask you, do you, do you care deeply about it? Have you had personal experiences that lead you? I mean, I have, and I'm very frank about it. I mean, my, I, I lost my dad to suicide. So this is a very important... Thankfully, not uh, anything to that degree, uh, but, you know, there is... Uh, uh, Certainly, uh, a history in my extended family uh, of of severe depression, mm-hmm. um, and not 
not my own experience, but um, you know, ones that I've seen. And then I, I'm the mother of kids. Yeah. And I see, you know, they're now in their early mid twenties. Um, and I just see how pervasive the challenge is for our young people. Yeah. 40% uh, of our, you know, teenagers have, uh, are, are dealing with, you know, profound depression or, or anxiety. It's uh, something that's increasingly afflicting young black youth, which, yeah. and the suicide rate for young black people has gone way up. I mean, so there's nowhere you can turn. And by the way, the proportion of adults is roughly now the same too. There's nowhere you can turn where this is not a problem. And so when I was, you know, working on domestic policy, whether it was, you know, how to, you know, how do we ensure that we have a robust workforce? How do we uh, deal with the challenges we're facing in education? How do we deal with the challenges we're facing with homelessness? How, I could go through almost every All issue. All of them are touched by mental the, health. Exactly. So I, it, I, it's, it's what I call a, fo- a force multiplier issue. You know, to the extent we can Im- invest in tackling mental health challenges, it will have redound to the benefit of so many of our other challenges. Now, what do we? What did we do? Well, um, I led the effort to. Uh, craft and now we're implementing the first ever comprehensive strategy to deal with our mental health challenges, ensuring that we're investing more in having enough providers, training people. Because one of the big problems is when you need right. help, you can't get it. Yes. Not everybody can be a psychiatrist, right. and you know, and we need a workforce that also looks like the people that they're treating. It can't just be you know sixty plus year old white men. Yeah, so Not that that's a bad thing. <laughs> Some of my best friends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in all seriousness, you know, you you need people with different degrees of skill and training. Some, you know, social workers, peer counselors, as well as you know, PhDs and and MDs. Uh, so building the 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 cadre of people, making mental health care more accessible. You got to be able to get it. You know, without you know going to the, a top university hospital, you need to be able to get it in your community, in yeah. your public library, yeah. in your school. And then working on prevention, trying to tackle, and that's part of what 988 is, suicide uh, and crisis prevention. But it's also tackling things like social media, which are poisoning our minds of our children. And so we have the first ever When you talked about depression among your kids, I worry about that a lot. I worry about my own grandkids and uh, who are very much plugged into popular culture. And then they're too young, you know, at this juncture. But I can absolutely see them sliding into uh the you know the point in their lives where they're going to be online and seeing what other people are saying and doing and um you know i think there have been many studies so we know that there's a relationship between the pressures that are put on our kids on social media i mean it's a it's a real thing. And, you know, the Surgeon General has done a great job of drawing attention to this. The Department of Health and Human Services now has, for the first time ever, a, a center to study the effects of social media on young people and to try to devise strategies for, for countering. And then we got to go after the social media companies. We need legislation finally to pass to protect our kids. I really wanted to talk about that because it's a national crisis and it should be a national priority. But so what you guys have done is, is well appreciated. Let me ask you about two other really stubborn and challenging issues that you worked on and that I know you care deeply about. The first is guns. Um, you know, you talk about young black men and the level of depression. I think often about 
these children who live near me in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago. Growing up in complete war zones all yeah, day long, my dad, every day. My dad grew up in the po- post-revolutionary uh, Eastern Europe uh, in what is now part of Ukraine. And he spent the first 10 years of his life experiencing violence, people being killed. His own home was blown up. I think he carried PTSD till the day that he died. But I think about all these young kids and what this must do to their young brains. And I know there have been studies on this. Guns, you know, I appreciate that they mean different things to different people uh, in the country. And there are traditions that people hold. But it's a, you know, it's a deadly, deadly problem in a lot of our communities. And you're limited by what the Congress is willing to do. You guys passed the first gun law in a long, long time, done on a bipartisan basis. But it was a small step forward. It wasn't. It was a meaningful step, but a small step. So, talk to me about guns and what you're not just what you you were able to do, but your frustrations. Yeah. Well, I'm. I'm. It's a really important topic, and and also I want to say, you know, I, I know how hard losing a parent is, and losing it to parent to suicide, and I admire your determination to talk about it and to and to well w- mental health is a it's a it's part of the human condition and um mental health one of the reasons health. we don't deal with these issues is because they're stigmatized and we don't talk about them my father was a great man and uh, and all of us are subject to depression all of us are subject to these pressures so we have to we have to flush them into the open and absolutely and and provide the opportunities for people to go and get the help that they need. But anyway, absolutely. Let's on, talk on about the guns. Gun issue, yeah. Well, first of all, this too is sort of an issue that I come at first and foremost from the vantage point of being a parent. Uh, of you know, I sent my kids to school uh, every day in in what I th- thought was you know a safe place and a safe community, and yet you know. You can't help but worry what could happen to them in school, uh, and you know my or to kids. And from. Yeah, and and my kids grew up in a or just living, just walk being in a playground. My kids uh, grew up at a time when you know Parkland and all these things were happening as they were basically the same age as, mm-hmm. as the kids that were killed, um, and so. Uh, we have got to get a grip on gun violence in this country. It's every day here in Washington, D.C., my hometown. You know, the problem is getting worse. Uh, and there are there there now, you know, now almost generations of young people who will have that incessant trauma of living in an environment where the violence never stops. So. To me, it's personal, but it's also, you know, to me, one of the most important policy issues we face. And it is exceedingly frustrating that when, you know, vast majorities of Americans of all political parties, as you know, 70, 80 percent of people believe there should be universal background checks. 70, 80 percent of people of all political persuasions think we ought to have, you know, so-called red flag laws and safe storage requirements, red flag laws so that people who are having, um, you know, uh, posing a risk to themselves or others um, can can be petitioned and, and a court can decide to take a weapon away temporarily. There's so many of the common sense gun policy reforms are uh, widely uh, embraced by large majorities, and yet 
Congress won't pass them. Republicans in Congress won't pass them. The president's been extremely vocal about how we need to reinstate the assault weapons ban, which when we had it for a period of 10 years, violent gun-related crime went down uh, dramatically and came right back up when the assault weapons ban uh, expired. So we there is no substitute for legislation on this. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which you mentioned, which passed last summer, 2022, was the first gun violence prevention legislation of any meaningful uh, nature in 30 years. Um, and it, it, it will, as you said, it was a small step forward. Um, what the president has done through executive action is basically the maximum legally allowable to go after ghost guns, which are these unmarked, unserialized guns that you can buy on the internet and kits um, to go after uh, and ensure that we are requiring background checks to the greatest extent possible. But we can do more. And that's what a a new rule that the Justice Department has just put out will do to make background checks as broadly required as can be. But we still need legislation because there's a gap between what you can accomplish with legislative action and what can be done through legislation. We got to ban assault weapons. There's just so many aspects of this. That's probably, uh, you know, look, I feel strongly about it because those are the weapons of choice of the Street gangs, every one of them has now semi-automatic handguns. And these are a gang, a former gang member told me in Chicago right on this podcast that, you know, it's un- considered unmanly if you don't have a weapon that doesn't, you know, shoot 30 rounds Gee whiz. Uh, or more. But, um, uh, but. We're not going to get an assault weapons ban, it feels like. Um, that's, you know, in terms of polling, that's actually down the list of things that people are willing to support. I, I find that odd but and, and disturbing, but it's the reality. These other things, as you point out, are huge political winners. But um, now, do you, you, did you have conversations with members of Congress about this? Tons. And what was the response? I mean, they must have been candid in private about what the political pressures were of. Well, I mean, first of all, for Democrats, there was a time, I think even back when we were serving together in the Obama administration, where there were some in the Democratic Party who were reluctant to be mm-hmm. outspoken on, on guns, gun safety issues. I think that's changed. I, I am hard pressed now to think of a single Democrat who wouldn't vote for background checks or red flag laws or safe storage laws or any number of other things. Partly because there are fewer rural Democrats in there Congress. There are fewer, but not none. Right. They're not none. And and I think the same, you know, uh, is true of most, if not all, Democratic senators. Uh, and so the problem, really, because many of these things did pass the House uh, when the Democrats uh, in, in, mm-hmm. had a majority— it's the Senate and the filibuster rule. Um, and we continue to be bedeviled by that on, on this and so many other issues. I know you'd like to slip out of here without me dragging you back into your <laughs> role as a foreign policy expert. And I want to get to it. But one last thing, because it is a sort of a nexus between the two. You know, in the city of Chicago, in other cities around the country, the immigration issue is really hitting home, partly because the governor of Texas keeps sending migrants into the cities to the point where there's no place for these folks to go. Tell me about dealing with that issue, because 
that is clearly going to be an issue that people are going to be considering in this election. And it's been a problem that's bedeviled us for a long, long time, and it continues to. In my experience working on domestic policy and national security policy, the immigration issue is one of the toughest and most intractable issues I've dealt with. Um, And there are many reasons for that. Um, You know, the migration, immigration challenge is a global phenomenon, as you know. Right. And it's big, big problem in our hemisphere. But we are receiving people at our southern border who've come from as far away as India and China and uh, parts of of Europe, as well as Africa, the Middle East, uh, and, of course, from Latin America. Um, Europe is facing uh, a similar challenge. Um, So it's global in nature. It is driven by factors that, you know, nobody can flip a switch and fix uh, quickly. Hunger, climate change, conflict, economic uh, insecurity. And our laws were written for a period that has long since expired. Uh, And we need to fix this problem in the United States in a meaningful way on a long-term basis. We absolutely need dramatic reform of our immigration laws and policies. We have a system here that is broken. Uh, We inherited a broken system, parts of which were made worse by the prior administration, parts of which have been a challenge for many, many years prior to that. Our asylum processing is backlogged and and slow. We don't have enough immigration judges. We don't have enough asylum officers. Uh, We need to have a combination, in my view, David, of... um, credible enforcement, as well as meaningful legal pathways for people to come here. I mean, this is important because, uh, you know, when you think about the comprehensive immigration bills that have passed at least one house or the other of Congress, they've all been predicated on the same notion that they have all of these elements, including uh, enhanced enforcement. Uh, You've been quoted as talking about the need to have rules that are enforced and observed. Uh, And uh, from a political standpoint, I think that that is uh, important. Um, But we seem farther away from being able to do that. I mean, I think the bill that passed the Senate in 2013 had 68 votes or something. I can't imagine that it would today. No, no. And there's just so many aspects of this that are, you know, horrible. We have the all of our DACA recipients, people, young people who came to this country, n- not of their own volition, who are hardworking, educated, contributing to our society. They can't get permanent uh, status here. Farm workers are, we need farm workers to keep our economy going. These are not jobs that are, that Americans for the most part are fulfilling in sufficient numbers. We don't have a system that enables us to. Let me ask you, so given all this, what you're saying, given all of what you're saying, what is the short term prognosis here? I mean, what, what can people expect? Do you think there'll be significant change in the short run? There won't be, sadly, in all likelihood legislation. I mean, I think there were points at which we thought we might get there with DACA and maybe with farm workers. But I mean, workers. just in terms of the issue itself. But with the, the issue itself, David, look, th- that's why I began by saying it's the, yeah. one of the most difficult problems yeah. I've I've seen. Uh, it has become demagogued and politicized to, you know, an extraordinary extent. Um, and w- we also have to separate legal immigration, mm-hmm. which 
uh, former President Trump did everything he possibly could to bring down to zero mm -hmm. legal immigration, that we are a country of immigrants, mm -hmm. uh, except those of us who were Native Americans or uh, African Americans brought, brought here under slavery. We're a nation of immigrants. And yet, you know, there was a concerted, multifaceted effort to make it very, very difficult, if not impossible, for people to come here legally. We need to build back our legal structures for immigration, including refugee processing and, and the like. At the same time, in my opinion, we've got to continue to try to ensure that there are consequences for those who come here without authorization, who come here illegally. And we have to make it possible for those that, you know, might choose to come here illegally to have a a legal legitimate pathway to to do so in the alternative. Yeah. And so what we had put in place is um, in the in the the last year plus of the Biden administration was a combination of these two tools: consequences and enhanced legal pathways. And that led to. For a substantial period of time, the numbers of Venezuelans, of Cubans, of Nicaraguans and Haitians going way down. Ticking up again, though. It's starting to tick up again. And, and, and what's challenging about the way it's ticking up is it's not predominantly the number of single adults that is rising. We actually have managed to... to keep that uh, relatively under control. It's now families. families yeah. And families are really hard because at, on the one hand, the same rules need to apply to families. And yet, you know, we saw during the Obama administration, you know, what happens when you put families in detention? Yeah. And you're not, we're not legally allowed to detain families for more than 21 days. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. When you were sitting up there working on all these issues with your staff of, your mighty staff of 40, and Ukraine was happening, and other issues were happening and unfolding, did you ever sort of get the urge to ankle on down to the situation room and say, I got a few thoughts on this? And did the president and others come to you and ask your thoughts on it, or did you just stay in your lane? Well, I tried to stay in my lane, and I— How you know, successful were you? Pretty successful. <laughs> um, to put this in context, Jake Sullivan, who's a national yeah. security advisor, who's doing, I think, a, a very good job in very difficult circumstances, is one of the few people like me who's worked on both domestic and national security issues yeah. during the Biden campaign— he was doing running policy, mostly domestic policy. Yeah. So he could have been in my lane and probably with much more justification because I was a newbie to this realm, whereas he's worked in national security for a long time. I could have been in his lane. That would have been just complicated and messy. And so we had a very constructive and, and respectful 
relationship. But, you know, he would occasionally ask me my views. I would ask him for advice and uh, and thoughts and perspectives. So it was it was collegial and collaborative. But, you know, I had plenty to do to worry about without trying to yeah. when asked for my thoughts and, and judgments. I tried to. to well, let me ask them. you about Ukraine, because the war drags on. As we speak, uh, Zelensky is in this country. Partly he's here because there's a debate now about additional funding for Ukraine. And this, too, has become more and more polarized by party. Do you worry, as I do, that as this war drags on and if it drags on and you're in a kind of grim stasis where, you know, you're making incremental progress, that the politics will shift on this issue? Uh, it feels like that the Ukrainians are in a race not against their own will or desire to fight, but the politics of all the other countries who are supporting them, principally ours. And pretty clearly, you know, Trump has a very different point of view on Ukraine. And Putin seems content to play a waiting game here. How do you see where we are right now and and what has to happen in the near term on this issue? Well, I mean, I think it's clear from some of the polling that, you know, support is softening for the war in Ukraine. However, there are still majorities uh, of 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 uh, the American public that understand the stakes and think that we have essentially struck the right balance of providing um, support to the Ukrainian cause without committing U.S. forces and without uh, it spiraling into a wider war. I think people give the president a great deal of credit, well-deserved, for striking that balance and holding NATO together. Having said that— The know, three leading Republican candidates all— Oppose additional aid and uh, have talked about but, you know, but imposing the, peace. Of course, on... but the Republican Party is divided on this, mm-hmm. and more, larger numbers of Republicans. Uh, I mean, you would know this better than I. Not um, Trump and DeSantis aside, they still support. And Ramaswamy. Do you even count him? Well, they do. He's, do he's, he's third. He's <laughs> third, third in the. Uh, depending on what he's. Anyway, but anyway, I'm not wasting time. On yes, that, okay. Large numbers of Republicans still do uh, see the necessity of supporting Ukraine. And David, I think you know the challenge that we face is being as plain as we can about what this is about. I mean, there is no question in my mind that if Putin is allowed to bite off a large share of Ukraine and hold it and get away with it, that he's not going to stop there. He didn't stop after Georgia. I mean, let's be honest. We've learned this the hard way. He didn't stop after Crimea. And I don't think he's going to stop uh, unless he is stopped. Um, And that has direct implications for NATO countries um, and for, you know, larger global security. So I think we have got to be patient. We've got to be resolute. Um, our uh, investment in this is, uh, you know, it, it's not insignificant in terms of dollars and humanitarian assistance, but in the grand scheme, it's modest compared to being at war. And that's what we're trying to forestall. But there is this new isolationism. You know, I think that if I'm Zelensky, I'm watching this with great concern because there may come a time when when the argument you just made, which I agree with, doesn't carry the day, or at least doesn't carry the day with the policymakers in this country. Look, I, we don't need to get deeply into 
what Trump's motivations are vis-a-vis Russia. But I do think there is in the mainstream of our body politic an understanding that when you let dictators have their will, the consequences for us are going to be grave. And what message does would a Putin victory in Ukraine give to China? I mean, we just kind of realize that we're we're not living anymore in a world in which nation states are sufficiently deterred from taking their neighbor's territory. And we've got to reestablish that. Otherwise, we're going to have chaos and American young men and women are going to be in harm's way again. I want, I want to ask you, we talked the last time we were on this podcast together. That was about, a long time uh, ago. It was. But some of these issues are evergreen. <laughs> uh, but it's really clear now. I mean, I, and you spent your whole life in foreign policy trying to navigate the tug of war between the sort of real politic concerns of the of of our national interest and values that go to human rights mm-hmm. and you know president recently i mean he's been very much courting india where there have been real human rights issues he went to vietnam he's courting vietnam where there are real human rights issues and it's in service of building this coalition to resist chinese hegemony how do you make these judgments and how do you stand up as a beacon for human rights and for democracy and still enlist people as allies who don't necessarily embrace those? It's kind of it's a messy business. It is. Dave, this is the perennial challenge of U.S. foreign policy in the 20th and 21st centuries. I mean, this is nothing new. We've always had this tension and this challenge to navigate the balance between our interests and our values when they diverge. Now, often our interests and values converge, and that's, you know, that's when things are relatively straightforward. But whether we're talking about U.S. policy in the Middle East, uh, whether we're talking about U.S. policy in Latin America or Africa, uh, now, uh, of course, in Asia, that there has always been um, a need to manage in what is a difficult gray area between, uh, you know, standing up for our security interests and our values. And they sometimes conflict. And there's just no sugarcoating that. And anybody who says, you know, well, it's one or the other, and we can't, you know, work to do both, I really don't, my opinion, understand the complexities we're facing. In an age of propaganda, Though these conflicts get promoted as signs of hypocrisy, and that adds to the complexity. No, they do. There's no question. There will always be absolutists, rarely those who have actually had the firsthand experience of trying to figure out how to balance these challenges. Uh, they're advocates on the outside, and their job is to push people on the inside. But rarely is it feasible to be absolutist on one side or the other. They're all the, you know, there's the Kissingerian rail politique types who even there, even there, you know, there's recognition that we do have values and principles to uphold. And then there's the, uh, you know, the advocates who would say everything should be uh, viewed through a lens of democracy and human rights. I'm a huge believer in the importance of promoting democracy and human rights. Uh, And I think that's got to be a centerpiece of our foreign policy. And so that's part of what we're dealing with in Ukraine, by the way, is standing up for, you know, uh, those principles. You know, it's why the United States under 
President Obama and now under President Biden has been such a leader in trying to advocate for the protection of LGBTQ rights mm-hmm. globally, where in places like Uganda, you know, your life can be at stake. So we've got to stand up for our values and principles. And yet at the same time, you know, we've got to make, you know, difficult trade-offs. So, you know, take the president's visit to to Vietnam. You know, President Obama also went to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I, I joined him on that visit. Um you know, Vietnam is a communist country, uh, and yet it's a country that uh, is feeling squeezed by China, particularly in the South China Sea, that it is a country where, you know, when we're trying to diversify, diversify our supply chains and not be solely beholden to things made in China, when, when China could cut those off, that we look to uh, to be an alternative source of, you know, everything mm-hmm. from sneakers to to chips right uh and so uh we got to balance those things and um it's never going to be perfectly neat or pretty you in my view were sort of victimized during the end of our administration the obama administration or the end of the first term when benghazi happened i was we talked about this the last time i was around and aware of sort of you getting thrust onto TV and basically sharing information that was given to you by the intelligence community with all good in all good conscience because that's what they thought the information was it cost you there was this lingering thing that was sort of reverberating out there particularly in right wing media now you see this impeachment inquiry going on um and i'm just wondering whether you're having sort of flashbacks uh, as you watched the Republicans ironically weaponizing the government under the guise of being against the weaponized weaponization of government, uh, whether you have flashbacks no. of your own experience. No, I don't. I wrote a lot about Benghazi and how that, mm-hmm. uh, how I experienced it, how it shaped me in my uh, memoir, Tough Love. And I try to be as candid as I possibly could. That was, you know, a very infuriating, frustrating experience. And I agree it's had some lingering effects, diminishing. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, I, it's not something I think about on a on a regular basis at this point. But So I don't have the flashbacks or PTSD or whatever. But what it does remind me is, you know, uh, how crass and um, disingenuous the motivations are for the, this impeachment inquiry. What what the, the play that, that they are running is the play that they ran on Secretary Clinton through the 12 hours of Benghazi hearings and, you know, basically muddying her up. Which, for the, her which, which Speaker McCarthy run. at the time acknowledged was the play. Right. And now they're trying to because they're, now they're trying to muddy President Biden where there's nothing there. And, and well, it's there, just... there are clearly issues relative to Hunter Biden. They're not, but they have not made a link to the president. That's my point. Yeah. My point is that an impeachment is supposed to be for high crimes and misdemeanors committed by a president while in office. Right. While in office. Let's not forget that. And there's nothing about this that uh, suggests that, that, that there's any evidence of that. And but they found, as Kevin McCarthy admitted, that they can do a lot of damage to a candidate, as they did to Secretary Clinton, by just creating the false impression of something wrong. And so that's the play they're trying to run on President Biden 
um, because, you know, they've got they're, they're looking to likely to nominate somebody who's been indicted for four times. The other thing that is out there and is being broadly discussed right now is the president's age. You worked with him. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with his public presentation. But tell me what your experience was in working with him on actual issues. Yeah, thank you for asking. Because, you know, I've spent a lot of time uh, with President Biden uh, in over the last uh, two and a half years. And I can tell you, having worked with him also while he was vice president, that he is perfectly uh, capable of and, and is running the presidency with all competence, firing on all cylinders, making decisions, uh, you know, setting strategies. I have I had no experience in my two and a half years in this Biden White House that left me with any uh, concern that he was anything other than fully capable of doing the job of president. That's the honest truth. Lastly, since we're on the subject of age, you're a veritable kid by today's standards. Hardly. Uh, I used to be. And uh, and I, I'm wondering, I, you're a lifer in public service, uh, and I'm wondering if you're done with public service or whether you foresee another chapter in the future. You're now you're you du- say it? D- double vested. I'm 58. Yes, but you're you you are. You have now significant experience on both sides of the ledger, domestic and national security. Do you see yourself doing something in the future in government, in politics, or both? I don't rule it out. I don't. You talked about running for the Senate at one point. I thought about it uh, for a little while uh, in Maine. Decided it, it wasn't uh, the right time or place or uh, choice for me. But, um, you know, I I learned after the end of the Obama administration, when I really thought I was done uh, with government, uh, to to not be so sure and to not be categorical. If you had asked me in 2017 when we turned out the lights in the Obama White House, or even in 2019 uh, when I wrote my memoir and published it, whether I expected to come back into government, I would have said no. And you know, I had no I had no idea at the time that that I would be uh, seriously considered and, and vetted to be vice president. I had no idea that I would uh, come back into the White House and work on domestic policy, of all things. Uh, and I enjoyed that experience of working on domestic policy enormously. I love serving. Uh, so I'm not prepared to say, hell no, but I'm also not living my life in preparation or anticipation or calculation to do that. I will be perfectly happy and content uh, if I never serve again and can look back on the service that I've been privileged to do. I feel very good about it and f- very grateful. So I'm not hankering to do it, but I'm not ruling out doing it. I will keep an eye on that. <laughs> I Well, thank you for the service and thank you for your friendship. It's always great thank to you, see David, you. Thank you, David, for yours as well. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 